0: It's not works that are designed to gain us standing before God or to mark us out as the fitting heirs, but acts that grow out of God's gracious work towards us that was unconditioned by anything on our side, whether that's things that we did to earn it or things that we did to mark ourselves out as its fitting heirs.
1: Hey folks and welcome to episode 163 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host Brian Moats and I'm assistant to Peter Lighthart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lighthart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the passages for the 16th Sunday after Pentecost. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by these observations on these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening.
2: Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Brian Motes here at Theopolis, and we're also connecting with Alistair Roberts from Durham, England. Uh, Today we're discussing the readings for the 16th Sunday after Pentecost in 2018, that's this upcoming Sunday, September 9th. And the readings for this coming Sunday are a portion of Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 7, a chunk of James 2, split up into two sections James 2, 1 through 10, and then verses 14 through 18. Uh, We might want to discuss the skipped verses there. And then a reading from Mark 7, uh, verses 31 to 37, but uh, the suggested text would also include verses 24 to 30 uh but the the last part of mark 7 is the assigned reading for the uh this coming sunday one of the things that uh, runs through here that obviously the in the uh Isaiah passage and also in mark is the theme of healing but i think when we look at the way that healing works in the prophecy of Isaiah we can see that uh what's what James is talking about in the the issues of rich and the poor that he's addressing at, in chapter 2 of his epistle are also at work and encompassed by Isaiah's uh, concern for the healing of people. So um, what I mean by that is this. Uh, Isaiah is, begins his prophecy with a kind of diagnosis of Israel's physical condition. He describes Israel as a sick body with a head that's sick, a whole heart that's faint, from the soul to the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's nothing sound in it. Bruises, welts, wounds—neither pressed nor bandaged, nor so- not softened with oil. He's talking about the social body, the political body of Israel, of Judah, and he's saying that the political body is wounded. No one is there to bandage it. No one is there to heal it. Uh, but it's wounded and scarred and bruised from the top of the head to the uh, bottom of the feet. And the reason for that is because the injustice that has taken over. Uh, the people uh, just before those verses were from Isaiah one verses five and six. Just before that, he's pronounces a woe, woe sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, seed of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. These, the these are ironic juxtapositions. Israel is supposed to be the seed of Abraham; they're supposed to be the sons of Yahweh. But instead of that, they're seeds; uh, they're the seed of evildoers. They're sons who act corruptly. And as we go on in chapter one, we find out that they're uh, the this the uh, land has become full of injustice they've become like another sodom or gomorrah and when you get to verses 16 and 17 of chapter one isaiah focuses particularly on the abuse of the uh, of the orphan and the widow the, the ruthless abuse of the orphan and the widow so the the physical condition of Judah, the uh, images of an of a body that's wounded and bruised literally that has to do with the abuse of the poor, the abuse of certain members of the body, the abuse of those who are marginal and weak. And part of the promise of Isaiah is that the wounded body of Judah will be healed. I should I should also bring in um, the uh, background of Isaiah 6. You have Isaiah 1 where you have this description of the wounded body, and then you have Isaiah 6, which is part of the call, the commissioning of Isaiah. And that's fa- a famous passage Jesus quotes a number of times about the deafness and the dumbness and the blindness of Israel. Uh, Isaiah is commissioned to go to speak to a people who can't hear him. He's supposed to uh, show himself to a people who can't see. And that's another part of the physical, uh, social part of the social condition of Israel that's pictured as a physical condition, physical defects. And those are the result of idolatry. So there's this, as often in the law and in the prophets, there's a connection between Israel's idolatry with, which renders them deaf and dumb and blind and the social abuses that are uh, that have taken over the land. So that's all background to Isaiah 35, which focuses particularly on the healing of the blind and the deaf and the lame and the dumb. Uh, and in the context, that's not just talking about the restoration of individuals to health. But in the context of Isaiah's, the sweep of his entire prophecy, it's also talking about the restoration of the social body of Judah.
0: The connection between the image of the body being restored, given sight again and hearing again and being able to leap for joy, that there's, alongside that, there's the image of the land being restored. And so the eyes of the blind are opened, and then the Springs of the wilderness are opened as well. There's a spreading out of life into the land. In some ways, it's similar to the pattern that we see in Genesis with the formation of the man and then the formation of the garden and then the man being placed in the garden. And the restoration of Israel here is connected with the restoration of both the man and the land. And then the bringing of the two together,
2: right? And then th- that also is rooted back in the early chapters of Isaiah, and um, which not only describe Judah as being like a broken body, but also describe Judah as a land of milk and honey, a garden land that's per- been turned to wilderness. So yeah, you have that. You have the 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 kind of fall scene early in the cha- early in the book, with the uh, the broken body and the arid the dilapidated garden, and now both are being restored. Uh, Isaiah 35 is also part of a large new Exodus theme that runs all the way through Isaiah, particularly becomes prominent after the middle of Isaiah when you get to chapter 40, and uh, the attention turns from the immediate crisis of the Assyrian invasion to the more distant threat of Babylon, and you have repeated allusions to the restoration of Judah, from exile, their return to the ter, return to the land and the Lord's return with uh, leading them, and you already have that here in this passage. Um, this is a desert scene, as you mentioned, uh, and it's the desert is being restored. It's becoming a garden with flowers, and uh, the glory of Lebanon in verse two refers to the glory of the the glory of the the, uh, the cedars of Lebanon. And the reason why the land is being restored by the wilderness is being restored is because water is breaking out in the wilderness. There's streams in the Arab, a scorched land is becoming a pool, and the land that was once the haunt of jackals is becoming a, a, a lush and fruitful land. So you have that, that's, that's restored to Eden, but it's also a, an image of the uh, return it's, it's a new Exodus image, the water in the wilderness. As, as the Lord made a garden in the wilderness for Israel when they came out of Egypt, he's going to make a new garden in the wilderness when they come out of exile.
0: And then the chapter leads up to the point where they're placed in the mountain of God's inheritance on, on Zion. It's the culmination of the, the exile um, and New Exodus imagery.
2: But I think the, the connection with our gospel reading is pretty obvious here. I've referred in the past to Ricky Watts' book on his monograph on the New Exodus theme in the Gospel of Mark. It's really illuminating study of uh, the Gospel of Mark. And he repoints uh, to Isaiah thirty-five and other passages of Isaiah, where you have this: uh, the 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 healings are put in the context of this new exodus. So what what Jesus is gathering by healing the lame and the blind and the dumb and the deaf, is he's gathering this uh, ragtag bunch of returning exiles, restoring them as a people, restoring the social body, and returning them, bringing them out of an even more severe exile than. Egypt or Babylon, he's bringing them out of the exile from Eden. He's bringing them out of the exile of sin and death, and bringing them into the into the kingdom. So, um, the the picture is you have a kind of um, I don't know if comical is the right word, but the the picture is of the Lord leading this great procession through the wilderness along the highway of holiness, um, and the ones who are following him are the those who've been formerly blind, those who are deaf. This is the this is the great company of people that are that he's uh, that he's bringing back from exile with him, and that's the that's part of the that's an important part of the background to Mark's pas- the passage in Mark, which has to do with the specific healing of a deaf, deaf and dumb man that the Lord restores to hearing and
0: to speech. Be interested to hear your thoughts on the use of saliva within this healing. We have the other account in um, Chapter Nine of John of Christ using spittle for a healing in that case for a blind person in a two stage healing but here you have the the opening of the ears with putting fing- fingers in the ears of the man and then the spittle upon the tongue what is the significance of that particular mode of healing now, there's some work to do here that i i haven't
2: done in enough detail but there's there's old testament passages that speak about spittle in some cases it's a Spitting at someone is an act of contempt. That's part of the, uh, as I recall, that's part of the, uh, part of the right for somebody who refuses to act as a leveret for his for his uh, brother or his relative. He he's uh, uh, he's somebody spits at him. I may be misrecalling that. I know that there is there in Leviticus fifteen the rules of uh, impurity, impure issues from the flesh. If somebody is in a condition of uncleanness and they spit at someone. That condition of uncleanness that's in their body is projected out, and uh, they, be- uh, whoever they spit on, becomes unclean. So there's a, I think there's a consistent with what we find elsewhere in the gospels. There's a kind of reversal of that. Jesus, Jesus doesn't contract uncleanness when unclean people touch him, and he also doesn't transmit uncleanness when he spits. Rather, he commit, uh, he, he's um, uh, transmitting healing and power and life. I think in uh, in John nine, I think it's pretty clear that there's a there's a Genesis two background to that passage. Uh, the man was born blind; he's being given sight. He's made made a new man. Jesus doesn't just spit, but Jesus spits on the ground and works in the in the ground, and then puts the uh, the wet uh, dust, the wet clay on the man's eyes. There's a there's a reference back to Genesis two and the uh, formation of Adam from the dust of the ground. So this man is being made into a new man. He's being made a new creature, and I suspect that you have the same thing here. Um, you know, the breath of life that is uh, coming from the Lord's mouth breathes into the nostrils of Adam, and he becomes a living soul. Uh, here you have new life given by Jesus uh, to a man through um, something that comes from his mouth. I, I suspect too you could you could find you could trace out parallels between things that flow out of Jesus we we have John 19 where the water and blood flow out of Jesus that uh, uh, classically understood as an image of baptism and the blood of the blood of the Lord's supper these are these are uh, life-giving fluids that come out of Jesus body in John 19 Jesus is the the new temple uh, he's the Ezekiel's temple and from Ezekiel's temple you have these waters flowing that renew and refresh the land so I think we we could probably find an we could trace out a link there too. It's not just the breath of Jesus that is renewing the breath it's the spirit, but it's also the the fluid that comes out of his mouth, uh, the water of life that comes out of his mouth did you have Did you have other thoughts on that yourself?
0: um not particularly. I think one thing I was wondering about was the any possible connection with the various occasions we have in Scripture where the prophet has their lips open. Or dealt with, or um, God's word placed in their mouth. Those are the occasions where we do see an attention given to the tongue, mm. to the mouth, the lips, etc. That the taking in of God's word in some form, or the going out of God's word from the mouth. That Christ's mouth, like a two-edged sword, the word coming out, or the word of the prophet, like fire coming out of their mouth, mm. mm-hmm. and that. Sort of exchange of fluids from the mouth and the opening up of the tongue, um, maybe connects in some um, broad sense to those themes.
2: Yeah, that that makes sense because the verse thirty three suggests, although it, uh, the NASB makes it less ambiguous than it is, but then uh, verse thirty three suggests that the spitting is specifically for the loosening of the tongue. So. He puts his fingers in his ears, and spitting, he touched his tongue, my NESB helpfully adds, with, his saliva, with the saliva. That's not actually explicit. But uh, the spitting is connect. seems to be connected more with loosening of the tongue than with opening of the ears. So uh, that would make sense that this is a cleansing of the mouth. It's a loosening of the mouth so that man can testify and, and witness. Your comments also suggest a possible connection with... Uh, Various imagery of of kissing in scripture, Uh, osculation, an exchange of breath, an exchange of fluid, a mouth-to-mouth, exchange of life. I mean, you could say that the Creator kisses Adam into existence, and um, you have um, images of refreshment and new life given through a kiss in the Song of Songs. So this is... This is kind of a, uh, it's its not a kiss, but it's kind of a mediated kiss. <laughs> Instead of uh, direct lip to lip, Jesus apparently spits on his finger and then touches his finger to the mouth of the man. So it's not exactly a kiss, but it's kind of a mediated kiss. It's like the old uh, PAX board that uh, they would use. Instead of exchanging a kiss of peace, they would you'd kiss the board and then somebody else would kiss the board. You would be kissing each other, but mediated through the, the PAX board.
0: Didn't know we'd get to a theology of the holy kiss from this passage. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't see that coming either.
2: <laughs> but uh, every everything, all roads lead to osculation. I think it's the it's, it's the <laughs> it's the center of the universe. I, I do think that your connection with the prophet, I think, is worth uh, worth highlighting again because the this man is being restored. I guess you could say he's restored to both priestly and. Prophetic uh, kind of ministry. the the opening of the ear. That, at least in the NASB, that's the verb that's used in verse thirty five. I haven't looked at the Greek, but uh, the ears are opened and the tongue is removed. So the loosening of the tongue is a kind of prophetic bestowal of kind of prophetic vocation. He's going to become a witness. You drew the connection with Isaiah six, but the opening of the ear is a that's a uh, that's a priestly act. It connects with the uh, rite of um, for making a uh, the right to, that's used to make somebody a permanent slave in the law, they'd have their ear bored, and the the, uh, the verb is their ear is opened. It's the imagery of the priestly ordination rite when you have blood put on the earlobe of the uh, priests who are being ordained. Uh, that's a that's an image of the opening of the ear. In this case, it's a man who can't hear, so his ear is opened in in the literal sense that he can now receive the vibrations of sound and they can they register. But there's also this imagery of he's being he's being uh, ordained as it were to a life of service. Now his ear is going to be open to Jesus, and he's also received the words of Jesus then the, what comes out of Jesus' mouth is now placed on his mouth, and so he's going to both hear and speak uh, the words of Christ. Yes,
0: yeah, so I was thinking about that um ordination rite that you have in Leviticus eight, and I think it's also used in is it Leviticus fourteen um for yes, another another right, but the big toe. I think it's, is it the thumb and the um and where else is the the earlobe? The, yes, yep. right. so the hearing and then the actions of the feet and the the hands. But there's another extremity of the body that comes into the foreground in the case of the prophet, which is the tongue and the lips. Mm-hmm. Whether that's the fiery tongues of Pentecost or the um burning coal that touches the lips of Isaiah or the the book that's taken into the, the mouth, um, yeah. whatever it is, that mm-hmm. this is a new extremity that comes, a new corner of the body, as it were, that comes into focus with the rise of that ministry. Right, right. Let's move on to the James passage. And I
2: think that what I was trying to do in discussing Isaiah was try to show the connection between Isaiah's concern and Isaiah and Mark's concern with healing uh, and James is concerned with the, uh, the the treatment of the rich and the poor in the church, and I think that those two things are connected in Isaiah because the the body of Judah is dilapidated and broken because of the mistreatment of certain limbs of the body, and um, the healing of Judah is a healing that means the the restoration of justice between the different classes and. Groups of people within the body and that's that's what James is addressing at the beginning of chapter two uh, when he uh, rebukes the readers for uh, treating the treating the wealthy with deference uh, and neglecting or shaming the poor putting the poor man over in a in a corner, while giving a prominent place to the wealthy man, and James offers a, cu- a couple of different arguments against that partiality to the to the rich. Verse five, he appeals to God's election, something that Paul also talks about. That God doesn't. There's not many wise. There's not many wealthy. There's not many high born. Rather, God has chosen the dregs of the world in order to, uh, and the foolish things of the world in order to confound the wise. And James says something similar here. God has chosen the poor of this world. You become heirs. So the par- partiality to the rich is uh, out of out of sync with God's choice and God's purposes. Uh, he also brings up the the practical um, or the the uh, situational issue of the way that uh, the wealthy are actually treating the members of the church. Verse six, uh, he says, "Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court?" I think James is writing very early in the history of the church. I think the diaspora that he refers to in the first couple of verses of his epistle refers to the diaspora of Christian believers from Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen. I don't think he's referring to the diaspora of the 12 tribes that happened at the time of the exile. I think he's referring to the new diaspora, and he's writing just in the aftermath of the, uh, the persecution in Jerusalem, and uh, addressing the addressing the scattered Christians, and he he's addressing them from Jerusalem. he uh, James remains in Jerusalem. It depends on which james which James you think this is, but I think this is James the uh, brother of John, the son of Zebedee. I have an article um, uh, that may be posted on the Theopolis website uh, about the addressees and the dating of James. In any case, I think that verse six, James is not talking about kind of metaphorical oppression. Or he's not talking about uh, kind of hypothetical possibility that the rich would drag them into court. I think he's talking about what is actually happening to the members of the churches that he's writing to. They're scattered. They're being persecuted. They've had to run. They've had to leave their homes, run away from persecution. And it's the uh, those who are part of the establishment, those who are wealthy, at least in terms of their their setting in society, if not in terms of uh, wealth. The wealthy and the rich who have been persecuting them. So showing deference to them uh, is not only out of sync with God's choice, but it's also kind of, uh, it's practically foolish because they're showing deference to the very people who are mistreating them.
0: And the foregrounding of the issue of election, I think, is important within this context because it starts off with the introduction that it's in your, coming into your assembly, but that reference to election highlights the fact that it actually is christ's assembly this is like the wedding feast situation where the orig- those originally invited have not turned up and so other people have been called in and this is not your feast to decide who has the places of honor
2: mm-hmm. right yeah that's good now, of course this passage is the um, mainly known because of uh, the the discussion of justification that comes a little bit later uh, in verses 14 through 18 is part of the reading but uh, that's just a portion of James's discussion of uh, justification and it's clear in verses 14 through 18 though that he's still talking about the same issues that he was talking about at the beginning of the chapter at the beginning of the chapter he's talking about partiality to the rich and and rebuking his readers for that. He's, uh, in verses 14 and following, he's addressing them about how they're to treat poor, poor brothers and needy brothers and sisters within the church, those who are without food or clothing. And uh, that's what leads into the discussion of faith and works. The kind of works that he's talking about are the works of mercy, the works of, of, of giving clothing to the naked, food to the hungry. Uh, it's not enough to faith without works would be like saying to somebody who's needy go in peace be warmed and filled but without doing anything to take care of their needs that's not that's not a uh, ineffective a fruitful expression of faith faith is dead without works just as an expression of warm feelings to somebody who's in need is dead without uh, doing something to uh, take care of their
0: needs that relationship between faith in works, works being understood as the works of mercy, I think is helpful to clarify how this plays out in terms of debates about justification often. Because in the context of our discussion of works, generally what we're thinking about are works that are oriented towards self-justification, works that are turned in upon ourselves, um, works that are preoccupied with our own Status And so even if these are works that are ostensibly ordered towards helping someone else, they're helping someone else ultimately for our sake to um, ensure our own standing with God. Mm-hmm. But yet there's something about the self-forgetfulness that faith can bring that makes the works of mercy its, pr- its proper fruit, mm-hmm. and the way that it orders us out away from ourselves. And so our works are no longer focused in upon ourselves. And so we're truly able to love our neighbor because we're no longer preoccupied with ourselves, but we're sharing a gift that we have been given. And the grace that God has given to us bears its natural fruit in our giving to others without being concerned what one hand is, one hand being concerned what the other is doing and being preoccupied with how God is going to see us. Mm -hmm. That free acceptance and that, forgiveness and the faith that ex- receives God's gift is that which enables us to live in terms of the works of mercy. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So um, you, you made uh, an allusion to um, the Luther, probably I don't think it was a, a original with Luther, that uh, sin is a turning, curving in on oneself. And this is showing that faith expresses itself in works that do exactly the opposite. They turn you out, outside not turned in on yourself, but turn you outside to love your neighbor as yourself, as James repeats in verse eight. The the classic issue when dealing with James two has been trying to reconcile Paul and James on justification and works. And they seem to be, on the face of it, they seem to be contradictory. And particularly when they cite the same passage and seem to cite it to completely opposite purposes. Abraham believed God and was reckoned him as righteousness. Uh, Genesis fifteen seven James cites here in verse 23, Paul cites that in Romans 4. It's the kind of the hinge of Romans 4, the argument of Romans 4. Uh, But Paul cites it as a uh, proof that Abraham is justified by faith apart from works. James is citing it as part of an argument to say that a man is justified not by faith alone, Verse twenty four, but uh, that a man is justified by works. And in in the context, he's he's also cited uh, referred to uh, Abraham's uh, willingness to offer Isaac as his uh, as his, uh, as an offering on the altar. And that's when the faith is perfected, and that's when Scripture is fulfilled that Abraham believed God has reckoned him as righteousness, and he becomes a friend of God. Uh, as a lot of Catholic apologists will say, yes, the Bible does contain the phrase sola fide, but only in uh, James two twenty four, where it says not sola fide, it's not by faith alone. That of course is the issue that people have debated, um, particularly since the Reformation. I'm sure it was an issue before that becomes, but it becomes more of an issue after the Reformation with uh, Luther's new insights into Paul's teaching about justification. And uh, Protestants do have a variety of different ways, and I think a variety of legitimate ways to show that the that they're not actually incompatible with each other. And a very you know a very a large level, not just not looking at this particular passage or particular passages of Paul, but just at a very large scope. Uh, Paul never denies the necessity of works. He never. Uh, he's always encouraging people to live out their uh, live out uh, their faith with fear and trembling. He's encouraging people to uh, produce the works of the fru- uh, fruits of the spirit. He uh, says that those who practice certain kinds of wickedness will not inherit the kingdom. And he talks about judgment according to works as the rest of the New Testament does. So Paul never denies the necessity of works. And I don't think James should be read as denying the reality of grace uh, and then that uh, grace is uh, the source of whatever good that we are able that we're able to do. So just at a very global level, I think there's no there's no systematic difference between the two. Uh, you can you can find various ways to try to work out the uh, work out the specifics of the terminology. Uh, I suspect that what uh, part of what's happening is that that uh, James and Paul are referring or focusing at least on different things when they're talking about works. Uh, James makes it pretty clear that the works he has in view are uh, works of charity. Uh, works of uh, giving to those who are in need, clothing the naked, feeding the poor. He refers to Abraham and to Rahab as two examples of Old Testament saints who were justified by their works. And these are these are works of devotion to God. I think what Paul is usually talking about, I think the new perspective or right to this extent, that what he's, Paul is usually focusing on uh, in on in, uh, his discussion of works has to do with, particularly in Galatians, for example, that certain aspects of Torah that are, badges of membership or badges of inclusion in the people of god and we can say that they're talking using the word justified in different ways but i think um, and that may be true but they're also seem to be u- focusing at least on different aspects of what it, what what works are any thoughts alistair on the uh,
0: on that paul james debate when we get to passages like i think something like titus 3 um, 1 to 8 i think paul has a very clear emphasis upon the importance of good works and the necessity of good works, but good works as fruit rather than the root, as it were. Um, But the way he describes that, I've often found it quite thought-provoking. He presents the importance of being ready for every good work and being subject to rulers and authorities, etc. Describes the former condition of, of... the Christians in Crete and then talks about the way in which what was once characterized by a way of life of foolishness, disobedience, deception, all these sorts of things, and serving various lusts, God's good work broke in upon that. The kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared. And this wasn't because of works of righteousness that we had done. There was nothing that qualified us for this. So at the outset, he's dismissing not just the idea of works of the law, although I think there's works of the law there, but also um, anything that would mark us out for this grace. Mm -hmm. But once that has occurred, our actions flow out of that grace that has happened and the fruits are necessary um, outcome of the grace that we have received. When we're reading Galatians, I think it's very clear that the works of the law are Specifically, fo- focused upon, I mean, I'd compare them maybe with thinking of your American identity in terms of having your flag flying, having, um, attending, I don't know, some special patriotic events on Independence Day, whatever it is. These aren't things that earn you your Americanness, but they are things that mark you out as American. And in many ways, that's how the works of the law function. At certain points within Galatians and he's arguing that it's not so much works that are designed to earn salvation although he does tackle those at certain points I think Ephesians 2 he gets into that to a degree and also in Titus 3 but what he's referring to there is something more particularly about an identity marker something that marks you out as a fitting heir for this uh, and yet the unconditioned character of that grace that that grace bursts upon us in a completely undeserved fashion and there's nothing that qualifies us for this um, advent of God's grace into our human situation but once that has happened there is this expectation that we should bear the fruit that is fitting and proper to that act that work of grace God's work towards us is that which yields good works in us. And so he ends up with, not by works of righteousness that we have done in Titus 3, but then just a few verses later, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But I think this also leads to just a very different focus of our life. It's not works that are designed to gain us standing before god or to mark us out as the fitting heirs but acts that grow out of god's gracious work towards us that was unconditioned by anything on our side whether that's things that we did to earn it or things that we did to mark ourselves out as its fitting heirs
1: thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast